Samantha's are vocal in a way that Kirsten's are not. Like Kirsten's are passionate, but it's like a quiet burn in the corner. Whereas like Felicity's like would burn your house down if they needed to, to prove a point. Yes, they would. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Not to be confused with Kirsten. Now, American Girl Doll, you got to understand, this is a brand that was imprinted on many a 90s childhood. For me, there was Lisa Frank, there was Delia's, and there was American Girl, okay? And the wild thing about American Girl Doll is that this was a mail-order line of high-priced dolls and books that almost magically ballooned into this whole lifestyle brand that as a mid-90s tween girl you couldn't not be aware of. I can't even play you a vintage American Girl doll commercial because there were none, y'all. Nevertheless, hordes of us somehow knew that we had to have these dolls. American Girl's inventor, Pleasant Rowland, was a school teacher, turned newscaster, turned children's book editor, turned doll mogul. And here is Pleasant at the American Girl Doll 25th anniversary celebration. This woman does not like giving interviews, so this is the best clip I could find. Somewhere in the archives of this company is a postcard written in green ink that I sent to my dear friend, Valerie Tripp, whom you all know. It said, as best I can remember, I've been down in Williamsburg this week and had an idea. What do you think of it? A series of books about nine-year-old girls growing up at different times in American history. There would be six books for each, and the stories would reflect the important moments of girlhood and how it changed and how it stayed the same over the years. There would be a doll for each character with historically accurate clothes and accessories so girls could play out the stories. There might even be matching clothes for the girls. And with that postcard, the idea for the American Girls Collection was born. With Valerie Tripp's help writing many of the original dolls' books, Rowland launched American Girl in 1986 with three white dolls. There was Kirsten Larson, who was a brave, quote-unquote, pioneer girl. There was turn-of-the-century Samantha Parkington and World War II-era Molly McIntyre. Within a year, her doll business had made over a million dollars. By Christmas 1995, the lineup also included colonial-era Felicity Merriman and Civil War-era Addie Walker, who was also the first Black American Girl doll. And I am timestamping Christmas 1995 because that was the Christmas that today's guest and I, of course, unbeknownst to all of us at that time, we all received our very own dolls. 
Allison Herricks and Mary Mahoney certainly had no clue at that point where those dolls would eventually take them. Allison and Mary are historians and hosts of the Dolls of Our Lives podcast. It started as them rereading the American Girl doll books that they both obsessed over as kids and has now turned into their new book, also called Dolls of Our Lives. I'm Mary Mahoney, and I'm definitely a Molly. And actually, I think it's hard to articulate why I'm a Molly. It's just sort of like you know it inside. My name is Allison Horrocks, and I have now been a Molly for over a quarter century, which feels like far too long. So started as a Molly, still a Molly, mostly out of like spite and stubbornness, which I think is what actually affirms still being a Molly. Mm. Wait, spite towards being a Molly or out of like spite as a Molly quality? So now we've been presented, we've gone back and read, you know, just about every character's books and we've been presented with all these amazing other models and we've said, no, we're just going to stick with the first one we ever encountered, which I think is what Molly would do as well. Yeah. I think it is what she would do. And like the premise of our show was that we were going to go back and reread all the books because we deeply felt we were Molly's, but we could not remember the plot to a single American Girl book. But we knew this was true. Like, as I was saying, like in your bones, you're like, I'm a Molly. okay? so then we get to the Molly books and we reread those and we were like, oh, my God, like now we're in a place where we genuinely don't know how she would answer the question. Where were you on January 6th? (laughs) Like. This person, she's chaotic. She might be a sociopath. I don't know. But we're still like doubling down on this. And as Allison's saying, we've now discovered all of these girls, these characters who came out after we kind of aged out of it, who are incredible. Like their stories are amazing. Like we're reading the Julie books right now. She's incredible. We read Kit. She's incredible. Like so many. And yet here we are, like still Molly's. So I loved in in your book, you, y'all self-describe as two historians who abandoned academia to make a doll podcast. <laughs> so basically living the dream. Sure. How did American Thank Girl you. enter the chat, the friendship chat? Yeah. So Allison and I actually went to the same college, but we never knew each other. We were in the same year and everything at a small school. We never knew each other. Then Allison went to grad school. I took a year off. And then I was going to the same grad program and Allison very generously offered to give me a tour of campus. And American Girl very quickly came into the chat for us because when you're in a history grad program, you think a lot about why do you want to be a historian? Like, why would anyone make the very unwise life choice of getting a PhD in history (laughs) at a time when the humanities have never been less respected and academia is in like a kind of fire sale stage? So, you know, that comes up a lot. We were talking about why we wanted to be historians. And a lot of people say, you know, I read this very deep monograph. And that's great. I also have done that. But for us, it really came down to like when we were nine years old, we got Molly's and the books. And that really started this journey of us being fascinated with history. Give me a little bit of the Dolls of Our Lives origin story, what you thought you would be making. Okay. So the whole time we were in grad school, we would keep telling people about American Girl. We would press people on which American Girl they identified with. We would correct them if they didn't say Molly. 
you know, it was just this ongoing kind of joke between us. And at one point, we started talking about Felicity, and we completely misremembered her stories. We thought she lived in Boston. We were convinced that she somehow worked for John Adams. Like, we were spinning out fanfic that wasn't real. But when we finished our PhDs, we thought it would be fun to actually go back and reread the books that we clearly did not remember, especially from the perspective of being adults. Like, we knew they were so important to us. What actually was going on in these books? So we started with Felicity, which are set in 1774. And actually, if you read those books, they reflect a lot of the politics of the 1990s when they were published. But with the book, we wanted to go beyond our own stories with American Girl and really think about, you know, what was this brand all about? What inspired it? And what did it mean for generations of people who loved it, not just us? How did people interact with it? How do people still interact with it as adults? Why then did the book take you to a little place called Colonial Williamsburg? (laughs) Because it's essential to the story of American Girls. So American Girl was founded in 1986, just like me. Which one of us has, you know, been better preserved? (laughs) Only time will tell. But when Pleasant Rowland came up with the idea, she was inspired in part by a trip to the mall, very 1980s space, but then also Colonial Williamsburg, where she went on vacation and came up with a business plan, question mark, which is not something that I'm inspired to do when I go on vacation. I don't know about you, but she went to this space. And as someone with a history and education, she had a literacy business that she'd started that was quite successful. So when Pleasant was walking around there, she basically, I think, was like, wow, if you focus on one person and you have like sort of objects that can help tell a story about a time, that seems like a really powerful way to teach people about history. But what if girls were actually the focus of this? Like, what if we put girls at the center of the story? And that's in large part what inspired her to create American Girl. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely was not expecting. And the place that (laughs) this woman got the idea was Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, it makes more sense if you zoom out and sort of look at this period of time and the kind of, you know, not culture wars. They wouldn't have used that phrase in the time, but the concern that kids were being influenced by things that weren't healthy. So you have Tipper Gore going after parental explicit labels on albums. You had the D.A.R.E. program jumping off like Nancy Reagan's war on drugs, like all of these things that were really concerned with air quotes like bad influences on kids and a feeling that people were turning away from patriotism like the 70s were a dark time like people were disenchanted so by the 80s you had some people really invested with making people care about American history about patriotism and so-called really good values for kids in particular so I think Pleasant's influenced by a museum that is itself really trying to tell a story about the history of the United States in a particular way, it makes sense that she would kind of glom onto that as something that might be important to share with kids. So talk to me about each of your relationships to American Girl dolls growing up and kind of how you became aware of them and your first impressions. So I know that we both started with Molly, like the Molly doll was kind of the entry point for both of us. I don't know how I like first became aware of American Girl. I just know that. And we've heard this from a lot of people. I knew what it was as soon as I saw it. 
right? Like the doll was opened and I knew exactly what it was. I was very excited to read her stories, to play with her. And the deal my parents made with me, which was a very good deal, was if I read all the books of a character, I was sort of like eligible to get the doll at some point. So on a cycle for like birthday or Christmas, like if I read all the Josefina books, I would like could get a Josefina. And so I had a number of dolls. I was very lucky as a child and I loved the catalog. And I was very much like I drew the line at the contemporary stuff. Like I never had a doll that looked like me or a doll that had, you know, like a skateboard or like a modern bunk bed. My dolls lived in the past only. And if they looked a little bit too modern, I made them Amish, which is like for somebody else to unpack some other time. But like that, that was kind of where my line was for me. My story is very opposite Allison's in a lot of ways because I was not a doll person and I'm still not. I hope this is a safe space to say that, but I know I host a doll podcast. It is what it is. (laughs) But I grew up a major tomboy and looking back, it's hard to wonder how I didn't know I was gay, but because I was out here with like my dad's tools building stuff like forts in the yard. I was playing sports year round, all these different things and loved to read. But I never really was a doll person. And when I was nine, I got a Molly doll and the books from my paternal grandmother at Christmas Eve at her house. And I write about this in the book, but it was an occasion where I usually felt very uncomfortable for a variety of reasons, but mainly because there was sort of an expectation that I would show up in like a velvet Christmassy dress and be very feminine. I mean, my grandmother had this kind of vision of what girls should be like, and I always really knew I was not what she imagined. And I had cousins who were. So, I mean, and they got dolls, too. So when I got Molly, originally, I think my first feeling was probably like, oh, God, like, you know, here's another thing that I don't relate to. But then I read the books with my mom and I just was so in love with Molly's world and with her aesthetic. Like I wear saddle shoes to this day because Molly did and she wore (laughs) jeans like I'm always looking to wear jeans to every occasion if I can. And, you know, so it ended up actually being this thing that really made me feel like me or made me feel seen. The magazine was hugely important for me. I, I loved the magazine and got it, you know, until I was God knows how old. But It was so sincere and earnest and really, you know, foregrounded girls like speaking to other girls like they would have normal girls on the cover, no models, like no ads in the magazine ever. It was purely just girls offering advice to each other or talking about what their lives were like. And I think it's also representative of just a zeitgeist, right, that people who never owned a doll, right? Never read an American Girl book. They have some familiarity, right? Like they have some idea of what you're talking about. And if you show people a picture, people who are totally detached from American Girl as a brand or like the experience of girlhood in the 90s, they kind of know what you're talking about, right? Like that's why SNL can still do sketches you know, 30 years later about Molly McIntyre and Samantha Parkington. You have some, you know, kind of basic through line. When I got Samantha, my first and only American Girl doll, it was such a huge deal. And in thinking about it, I feel like it was kind of also one of the first sort of like girlhood status symbols 
because it did feel like looking at the catalogs and all of these accessories and furniture and all these different dolls you could buy, like, there was part of it that felt so incredibly accessible through the books, but also, like, so very out of reach. I mean, I definitely understood how privileged it was to have a doll and to have the books. I still don't know how my grandmother did this because she was a retired school teacher and she bought us, you know, a couple American Girl dolls and all of their books for different Christmases in a row. And I think about that all the time. But beyond that, I didn't really buy much American Girl stuff because I was more invested in the magazine. But, you know, hearing your experience, what it makes me think about is the fact that we've heard from a lot of folks who grew up into adulthood and a, a marker of, you know, like a, a gift they wanted to give their younger self was that they bought an American Girl doll as adults because they couldn't do it as a kid. Yeah, If you look even today, right, you can buy a cool Barbie for under $10. You cannot get an American, you're spending at least 10 right. times that, right, to get something from American Girl today if you want a doll. I was always told, you know, that dolls were special and that, you know, you take good care of dolls. And that was kind of regardless of where they came from. So I still have pretty much all of my childhood dolls and they're in, you know, like pretty decent condition. But Pleasant Rollins imagined this as something that you would pass down as something that would go generation to generation as a true collector's item. And if you're in sort of like the porcelain doll world or the collecting world, that makes perfect sense. There's entire segments of people who see dolls as heirlooms. But for me, it was like, this is something you can play with, but it's also something that you should treasure. So like, yes, my Molly did get a haircut, but she needed it. Like if she asks for it, I'm going to give her it. But, you know, like in general, <laughs> I did take very good care of my dolls, wow. I think. Okay. Tell what what kind of haircut did we did she get? She had a trim, of course. I mean, so the hair, like if you are just like actively playing with the doll's hair over time, the hair needs work, right? So she's since been to a professional salon where she's gotten like the appropriate work wow. and people have given us hacks of different ways to do pretty basic stuff yourself at home. But you know, I like trimmed her bangs because I like doing that to myself and I trimmed like the ends of her hair. I've given my felicity a haircut i kind of learned a lesson there so i haven't you know been as bold with with other dolls but wow. sometimes too like they do get they do get like splits and they, their hair does get kind of matted so you do need to give like some slight trims mary you seem concerned <laughs> <laughs> i'm concerned i'm scared right now i mean but you should know that allison also iconically yes. um cuts her own bangs and she has for many years so She's kind of practiced on herself, at least, before she's taken it to the dolls. Or maybe she learned on the dolls and then <laughs> practiced on herself. I'm not sure what the timeline is, but I just remember, like, my friend growing up had a Kirsten doll, and she unbraided those braids. Never back. And then I was like, you're never going to get those back. And they're ne and she didn't. Sure enough, she did not. And then she just sort of had to pretend like she always wanted Kirsten to just have her hair down all the time. That's where I was sort of like, this doll is precious, and I can't do anything that I can't redo myself. Yes, I did play with my dolls, but I was always like, the braids are a bridge too far, so I have to leave it alone. Allison, you mentioned Barbie a minute ago. 2023 has been the year or five years of Barbie. And <laughs> they are, yes, both dolls, but like feel very apples and oranges 
But uh, is there a relationship between the two, at least maybe in the mind of Pleasant Roland? I think we're like Mary and I and a lot of other, you know, listeners and like people who connect with American Girl. I think we're very inclined to see them as pretty similar. And I think that would shock Pleasant Roland. Like I think for Pleasant Roland, the origin story of her company is historic colonial Williamsburg, right? Like in an important historic place. And the origin of Barbie is sort of like the mall, like this California enterprise at the mall. And to me, like what makes them special is like Barbie was for me a vision of like what being an adult woman could look like. An American girl let me imagine being a girl in the past. And like, obviously my career now kind of puts those two things together. So for me, they're not miles apart. Like they're, they're not so different. It was all about like imagination and creativity and Barbies were more portable. I think Pleasant Rowland and other people who created educational materials saw themselves as being the ante, right? Like this isn't like Cabbage Patch or the Sour Pale Kids or it isn't like any of those things, but I actually see them as living in the same world and it's not charitable. You were all trying to make money and you were all very successful, right? So to me, it's never really a shock that ultimately Rowland and her team decide to sell to Mattel. Like, I don't think the paths are that different, despite how they were created or the vision from the beginning. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, you know, the difference is that Pleasant started off avowedly saying this is an educational toy, <laughs> which is I'm sure what every kid wants to receive, something called an educational toy. Um and she came out really hard against Teddy Ruxpin and all these signature toys of the 80s, which she called ugly and Toys R Us. You know, she was disgusted by it, allegedly. But, you know, to Allison's point, she sells to Mattel in the 90s. And some people viewed that as a betrayal because she validly was saying this is not Barbie. This is the opposite of Barbie. And she was insistent that the dolls would never appear to grow up that they would be firmly girls and they would never have any romantic attraction to other characters in their books. Like she was critical of things that made girls grow up too soon. And so everything in her brand had to preserve girls as girls. And to Allison's point, Barbie is all about adulthood and different career paths. Like obviously Barbie's like the ultimate multi-hyphenate, right? So they're always at odds generationally. But I think at the end of the day, they're both products. And I think as American Girl evolved into the 90s, they moved further away from history being the goal or the ideal setting for the girls' lives. Yeah. And do you have any sense of why Pleasant Roland was so, so concerned about this idea of kind of extending girlhood? Was that just like the Reagan 80s vibe? What do you think got her so latched on to that? Well, I do think it's a lot of the Reagan 80s culture and a concern about the morality impacting children. I think if you go back and look at Pleasant's career, she started out as a teacher and then becomes a news anchor in the 70s. And she has these wild profiles of her by mostly male journalists that ask her really rude questions. They remark on her teeth and say she has sexy teeth at one point, which I defy you to show me a profile of any man in business or any profession where the sexiness of their teeth is, 
important. But anyway, in one of these profiles, she is asked, what do you think about the feminist movement? This is like in 1970. And she says, I agree with the general goals. I think women should be paid equally with men. But I don't agree that, you know, I think the femininity of women matters. And I think the feminist movement loses its power when it, I think she has some phrase like, bangs its fists on the table and wears army <laughs> boots. And it's like, pleasant, what are you talking about? But I think it, you know, you can see that a decade later showing up in how she's approaching and really enshrining a certain kind of feminine girlhood as really important to protect. And it's bound up with innocence and morality. Reviewers of American Girl in the 80s were saying it's really nice to have books that have a clear morality at a time when even parents don't know the difference between right and wrong. When you reread the books closely as an adult, we understand that they're intended for children. But when you read them as an adult, one of the defining things of the early characters is essentially not being like other girls, right? Like one of the real standout things about Felicity is that she is reluctant to do certain female domestic tasks. Molly refuses, right, to do some of the like gendered female tasks that are expected of women during wartime. Even Kirsten is doing things with boys quite a bit, and she's like defying what people are asking of her to do. There's all these moments where these characters, part of how you come to understand them is they do things that girls are not supposed to do. And I think that's one of the kind of like brilliant strokes of Pleasant Rowland and her early authors is they're giving you a model of girlhood that's somewhat plastic, but it is also very much saying like there are certain things that define girls across time. There's curiosity, there's right. love of friends, devotion to family, but they don't present you with, you know, like a hyper traditional or caricature-ish version of girlhood. They play with it just enough where you kind of buy it. You think Felicity's cool because she doesn't want to make apple butter with her mom and she wants to wear pants. But there's so many other things that she does that are traditionally feminine for her period. What role did American Girl, the magazine, play, do you think, in its evolution? So I think that the magazine played a really important role in offering accessibility for the brand to people who could not afford the things of American Girls. We've heard a lot from people who were ardent fans of the magazine, subscribed to it because it was relatively inexpensive to get the six issues per year that they published. And that was a way to experience a lot of the brand without having to spend a lot of money. And interestingly, we got to um, interview an editor from American Girl magazine, and in many ways, that was the most inclusive and representative arm of the brand. So they were really insistent that they would feature girls of all backgrounds, of all economic backgrounds, racial. They wanted to make sure there's a story about having an illustration and another editor saying we need to feature girls with disabilities to normalize that and be inclusive. So they were really looking at every part of the magazine and saying, how can we make this reflective of actual girls who are reading this magazine? In a lot of ways, like I know people have rightly called out the brand in other products like the Addie Dolan books for the ways it's dealt with race and not included dolls or characters of different backgrounds. But the magazine was doing that all along. A lot of the very iconic 90s publications like the giggle books and things like that they outsourced 
So they worked with a few mostly female-run firms of like young women in graphic design, and they had a good amount of autonomy over what they did. So they were still under the umbrella of the brand, but we spoke to some people who were involved in those products, and they also were acutely and consistently concerned about costs, right? How do we drive down costs? And one of the conversations that seems to have been had a lot at American Girl was what are we willing to sacrifice in terms of quality to increase accessibility? And that that was a pretty constant tension, at least in, in the first decade plus of the brand. As two historians, does American Girl also, what does it reflect about that time and also maybe even like these generational ideas that we millennials were raised with? We have, you know, hundreds of hours of us criticizing the books and talking about books that we know were written for nine-year-olds. But I think what was important I see American Girl as definitely a product of a certain wave of feminism and really trying to make the thesis true that women and children have always been part of history. And I think the fact that they're child actors in history remains really, really important. Like we were the first generation to have nonstop ticker tape on the news and constant news cycles and to really grow up with the internet. But to say, you know, out of all of this noise, there have always been girls who have done brave things or have done foolish things. And they were stars of their own lives in kind of very different ways. I think that's part of like what the gift American Girl was to our generation I also think at the end of the day, it's a product and we get asked a lot, you know, like what, what is, you know, Mattel going to do about their declining trends in sales? Candidly, like that's not my problem, right? Like I'm a lover and a consumer. It's not my job to like re-engineer the back of the house. I think that we're products of a very specific time in the brand's evolution and what it looks like from here. I think a lot of that is going to be dictated by market trends. But the first 10 years, that was such an experiment. And I think that was a gift from a certain generation and brand of white feminists to children. If you think about how we grew up in the 90s, you can imagine moments in your own life that are manifested in the politics of the brand in the same period. So we probably all had multicultural affairs in school where you had to represent whole countries or mm. different groups. And having a fair where everyone has a different country really flattens that difference between different national groups in, in the space of one classroom. In a similar way, the American Girl books present difference as something that's both visible and invisible. The nuance of differences in power dynamics and privilege are often erased. So like Felicity's family literally enslaves people, but she doesn't see race be, or we're not supposed to see her as racist because she has a black friend which is very 1990s culture, for example. And, you know, I mentioned before that Pleasant 
in the 1970s in an interview was saying, I believe that women should be paid equally with men. She wanted to enshrine feminism with femininity and a certain kind of white feminist vision. And yet, when you look at where we are now, the books were always insistent that girls mattered. And that representation was so important to me, even as it was very limited and had a lot of issues. We're reading the Julie books right now, which are set in the 1970s, and they pointedly will never use the word feminism. You know, she's advocating for Title IX in one of the books. It's really important to her to join the basketball team and all this stuff. And the peek into the past in the back of these books always has some historical context for the events and the plot. And those were my favorite parts of the book sometimes. And in those contexts, they never mention feminism or the feminist movement. And I think that's hugely telling that, you know, even as the books insist on the importance of girls to the story, it's more sort of the surface level of like girl power of the 90s at times, which is really about selling you things than about enshrining or insisting upon equity along issues of gender. And I think that that mm. makes me sad, but it also makes me think about like as we're reading the Julie books, why aren't we talking about feminism? Why aren't we inviting girls to be curious about issues of difference as a matter of history? Do you think that we would be talking about American Girl today if the books had not existed, if it had only been dolls? No. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't, because even The Magic Attic, which was books and dolls paired, the stories to me weren't as strong. The stories were more fantasy-based, and those just never like lit me up the same way that a historical book does. I use this word a ton when we talk about American Girl, but to me, it was all about world building. The fact that I could go and hand make or collect or add different things to their world and like see it kind of endlessly expanding. I think that's part of the brilliance of the brand's construction and that you mm -hmm. can read a lot of different things into it. Like you owning a Samantha means a certain set of things to you and it would mean different things to a thousand other listeners of this show but there are basic things that you can all conjure up like you can picture her in that maroon dress right you can picture her having that birthday party so it's the commonalities but it's also that you could personalize it so much i think that made it really special are there any listener stories in their relationships with american girl dolls that have especially stuck with you I think for me as a queer person, it's been really interesting to do this show after I came out to myself and to everybody else and to hear from listeners who were also queer for whom the dolls and their stories were really important in their own coming out story because I had no clue I was gay reading these books. You know, I came out later and it's been really interesting to see how even people who came out later have are sort of mapping back onto these childhood characters or ca characters who matter to them in their childhood, traits that they now identify as being important to their own understanding of their queerness. And particularly for adult creators who are doing like meme accounts, like Lesbian Kirsten, it's a creator named Sarah who runs that account, to just have fun with the American Girl characters as a source of like queer joy. And I think a lot of that, particularly if you're a millennial, comes from the, the fact that we didn't grow up with queer representations, especially in children's books or toys. So it's interesting to see how people are kind of having the fun in adulthood that you couldn't have as a child with this brand and with these characters. 
I think we mentioned in an episode once completely in passing, you know, like if your house was burning down, would you want someone to save your American girl dollar if your house flooded? And in response to that through the years, because people listen at different times, like we've had someone write and say, you know, the only thing that survived Katrina was one of my American Girl dolls. So this doll now has this whole other meaning or like the loss of my doll in a house fire or the loss of my doll in a flood or other kind of horrific incident is like part of what sticks out to me. And so I'm reclaiming that story by buying that doll for myself again. I think that has been like one of the most telling things that like we we can't make huge assumptions about people's relationships to these dolls because even that casual throwaway line, people said, oh, no, like someone saved my doll during this natural disaster. I think the first time that I felt like there was something like bigger happening here was someone told us that they listened to us while giving birth and that scared me. Because to me, it was like, well, we're just talking about these books that I used to read in the back of my dad's truck when I was nine. American Girl was a very like one person thing for me. I mostly played by myself and my mom helped me get stuff. And now hearing from people saying like, no, like I took comfort in hearing you joke about Kirsten while making a person. That was cool. And just not a frame that I ever (laughs) thought this would fit in. Have you all hung on to your American Girl dolls? And if so, like, in what form? So Allison's are probably with her right now. (laughs) They're around, yeah. So Mary's are what we would classify as missing in action. Like, they went AWOL at some point, and we're not clear kind of where they've ended up. So mine uh, lived with my parents for a period of time and then came to live with me when I had the space and they've lived with me ever since. They mostly congregate in one room. And so part of that is because there are many of them and people can find it alarming. I How many? How many are we talking? Like over 20. So which is not a lot in like American girl collecting. But I, I think some people unfortunately find dolls uncanny or alarming. And so for some people, it's a shock. Like I had a neighbor help me with, you know, getting like a a task done. Everyone was having it done. It was like, hey, just so you know, like there'll be some stuff that you're going to see. And she was like, okay. Wow. Sometimes you open the door and there's, you know, 50 eyes staring back at you. And it's like, it's just, you're not, you're not prepared. (laughs) Terrifying. So I love my collection. I've continued to add to my collection. I also have dolls at work. Like I'll put them anywhere. My mom has some of my dolls right now because my niece plays with them. Not good ones. I'll just be real. So they're a little (laughs) bit spread out, but there's almost always one in my car. And I have a coworker who's taken to do this too. And I'd be like, when you're hot, they're hot. You know, so we kind of like, it's just like a source of amusement for us to like move them around. It's, it's like, it's a source of levity, right? Like I know that they're things, but I also kind of enjoy a little bit that it makes some people a little bit squirmy. Is there anything that I have not asked y'all about American Girls, Dolls of Our Lives, anything that you want to make sure listeners know? I guess are you a Samantha? Like you had a Samantha, but does it feel right to you now? No, (laughs) it doesn't. It doesn't. I loved the fact that, like me, she had long brown hair. I liked her frilly Edwardian dresses, but I quickly resented her for having a wealthy grandmother and her getting to, like, like I think I thought it was kind of admirable that she worked with, you know, she was against child labor, 
But I also felt like if I were in one of these books, like I would have been one of those child laborers. And I don't know why, but I feel like I found like her relationship to her aunt and uncle grating. But I think it's just because like I I resented her <laughs> because I wanted I wanted the 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 ease the uh, the financial ease that that she seemed to have. So again, I think that it's That's really fair. not about Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> it's never about the doll. No. It's usually not about the doll. And ladies, I cannot wait to hear your American Girl doll stories now. Please tell me everything. Did you have a doll? Did you want a doll and never have it? Do you still have your doll? Do you identify with any of the dolls? Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me your voice memos and emails. Thank you so much to Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney. You can follow the podcast Dolls of Our Lives on Instagram at Dolls of Our Lives Podcast. You got to go listen to the podcast, though, Dolls of Our Lives, and very easy to remember for picking up their brand new book, Dolls of Our Lives. And unladies, if if you want to be a doll and give unladylike a holiday tip, a holiday bonus, perhaps, come join the Patreon. Come on in the unladies room. I've been doing a number of exclusive interviews over there, including my recent conversation with film director Molly McGlynn, all about her personal experience being diagnosed with MRKH syndrome, which meant she was born without a uterus and had to, quote unquote, make her own vagina. Oh, And she got this diagnosis when she was 16 years old. It's a fascinating conversation. Highly recommend. You can search Unladylike Media in the Patreon app or go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia to subscribe and listen to all of that. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? It's a tough question. Sadly, I feel like this is easy. I dress like a man going to war in the 1890s every day for work, not by <laughs> choice. That's not a cosplay situation, but I feel like I dress in a way that Teddy Roosevelt would approve of for like a young boy graduating from Harvard. And wow, I don't what a vision love it, but I do it because it's 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 part of what I do for I'm not a cop, but it's part of what I do for work. And so she's a part that is definitely like the least feminine thing about me. We have a skirt that we are authorized to wear and it is somehow a hundred times worse. Wow. I don't know how to compare with that, but I would always say I've identified more as a broad than a lady my whole life. And I've always like believed denim on denim is my preferred style. <laughs> and primarily I believe in kindness, but not etiquette. So I think that's another core belief.